What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. For the public display of imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host. Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. I ain't trying to harm nobody. She's a lifelong book lover who left the world of corporate finance to pursue her passion for writing. After co-authoring the nonfiction book Haunted Highway, The Spirits of Route 66, she realized her true love was fiction, historical mysteries in particular. She also decided that winters in Arizona were much more enjoyable than winters in Michigan. Taking a cue from the old Paul McCartney song, Diane and her husband just follow the sun. Her debut novel, which was the first book in the series that we'll be talking about today, was titled A Lady's Guide to Etiquette and Murder. It won the Agatha Award for Best Debut, it won a Lefty Award for Best First Novel, and it was also nominated for a Mary Higgins Clark Award. Heat up a spot of tea, boys and girls, because today's adventure takes us to London, where we will explore the pages of The Countess of Harley cozy mystery series with author Diane Freeman. Diane, thanks so much for setting aside the time. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. What a fun series this appears to be as I looked at the three books across the line. I'm much more of a coffee drinker, just to get that out there up front. I'm much more of a coffee drinker than a tea drinker. My wife loves her British breakfast blend. I think that's our choice of teas. Is it coffee or tea for you? Are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? I am a neither drinker. A neither drinker. I don't like tea. (laughs) If I feel like, boy, do I need a jolt of something, I will down a coffee. But it's not something I particularly enjoy. 
But if you need a jolt of something, it's straight to the whiskey. What? Where are we? Where are we going for our jolt? <laughs> no, just a, a little jolt of of energy, a little focus. Yeah, I that got caffeine. You. That caffeine hit. Yeah, I grew up in the South where. Tea has to be so sweet it can walk on its own, and it's normally poured over a full glass of ice. So that's kind of where I am. My wife does like her hot teas, though. I take it that you grew up in Michigan, that's my guess, but you bailed out on winter once you got old enough that you could choose your own weather, right? That's that's very true. I uh, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, my husband retired I don't know, a significant number of years before me, I think probably about seven or eight. And uh, after his first winter in Michigan in retirement, he, he said, this just isn't going to work. We, yeah. We've got to find a place. So for six years, he would spend the winter in Arizona. <laughs> I would stay here shoveling my own snow and digging out my own car. Really? And then I finally retired. So so now we're doing it together. Ah, so you kind of like, no, i got a job here. i got to stick with my job, get my years in before yeah. I can retire. And that includes shoveling snow through the winter. But, it did. It but did. now Arizona in the winter months, because that's when you want to be in Arizona, because it's 127 degrees in the summer months. Michigan in the summer? Michigan in the summer is just lovely. Uh-huh. We do have to deal with humidity, something that we kind of forget about while we're in Arizona. Yeah. But uh, it, it's it's beautiful. We're having a lovely day here today. You're talking to somebody from Florida, so I know humidity. That, uh, yeah, it'll beat you to death here. This series that we're going to talk about today is set in London. I understand the draw to Arizona, and I understand the love for Michigan. What drew you across the pond? Why why London? Well, it was not until after I retired that I decided to write this novel. And um, I was kind of fascinated with the whole phenomena of the transatlantic marriages that happened at the last quarter of the 19th century. Yeah, okay. Where the the nouveau riche, the the Jenny Jeromes, and um, many many young women were not accepted in higher class society, whether it be New York City, whether it be Philadelphia, uh, San Francisco, they were left out. And the best bet for any type of a marriage for them was to look across the ocean, because in England, there was an agricultural depression. Um, America, for one, was really uh, exporting cheap grains, but all of the uh, aristocrats basically did live off agriculture. Because of the Industrial Revolution, the people who would normally have worked the land, been their tenant farmers and their servants, were all going to the cities for jobs. They were suffering, and they needed an infusion of money. So these heiresses who came along with their giant dowries were very welcome. <laughs> but it just struck me. Yeah, it, it struck me as just such an odd thing. And um, I had read long, long ago the books of Edith Wharton, and she wrote about that particular era. But it wasn't until later that I did learn this was really a thing. Mm. And it was... Um, kind of a cottage industry. There was a periodical that came out quarterly called uh, Titled Americans. And if it was 1890 and you were a young lady in New York City and you were looking for a titled husband, you could pick up this this little guidebook, this little paper pamphlet, and it would tell you about the heiresses that went before you. And then it would also be Similar to like Match.com, you would get a little description, a little summary about all the available 
titled aristocrats who you could then set your cap to and go across and hope to get an introduction and then hopefully get a proposal. The first dating service you're telling us about that connected people. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, this happened enough. There were 200 heiresses in that last 25 years who married British peers. 300 if you went into other countries in Europe. So this was a, it was a cottage industry, but it, it was a money-making thing, and everybody wanted a part of it. Wow. And we thought yeah. it all started a, with order your uh, mail-order bride from somewhere in Asia is where we thought all this started, but no, it dates back to that. I did not realize that. That's very, very interesting. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Book one in this series introduces us to such a wealthy young widow who she yeah. encounters the pleasures and at times the scandalous pitfalls of the London social season. But Frances Wynne was born in America. And as you've described for us, there's an easy connection here that brings her across the pond. Introduce us to Frances. Frances was one of those heiresses. She was born in Akron, Ohio, and lived probably the first 10, 12 years of her life there. When her father decided, he was an inventor, and uh, he found that really pretty much anything he touched turned to gold. So his wife talked him into, okay, let's let's go to New York. Let's take this money. We'll become rich society people. She had very big social ambitions. And uh, they took Francis and her brother and sister along. Francis was the oldest, and so she was the first for her mom to try to marry her off and make some social connections. And as I said earlier, it, it just didn't work. Francis was locked out. The upper 400 of Mrs. Astor's society just was closed. It was a closed group. That's what made it so enticing. But they decided to take their chances in England, and Francis was married to Reginald Wynne, who was the heir to the Earl of Harley. I had always kind of wondered what happened maybe a decade down the road. So that's where we picked up Francis, like 10 years after her marriage. And she is now coming out of her first year of mourning. Her husband has passed away. Yeah. So her husband, Reggie, in book one, he meets with an untimely death. She's well aware of some of the details of everything that's involved here, but apparently she doesn't know everything. What happened that resulted in Reggie losing his life? And and how much does Francis know and how much is she in the dark here? Uh, Frances knew that her husband, pretty pretty early on in the marriage, was uh, a feckless and a philanderer, and he married her for her money. That was that was all he needed. He kind of dumped her in the country, and he went about his bachelor ways. So she knew that that he was, as we'd say now, cheating on her. Mm. And he was discreet. She didn't have to face it all the time. So that's kind of what she was expecting. This was a loveless marriage. She had hoped for better, but this is what she got. 
So when he died, which he died actually in the bed of one of his lovers, she had to kind of collect herself and say, you know, I I don't think I want to live this life anymore. She would normally be in the dower house on the estate and living with her in-laws because she didn't give birth to the heir. So Reggie's brother now inherited the title. So she'd have no role in the house. She'd just be living off their good graces. And she kind of didn't want that. Fortunately, her father had enough foresight when she married to set aside a certain amount of money for her. And then when her daughter was born, he added to that. So Frances has a small fortune where she can do what she wants, but that's not what women did in those days. Mm -hmm. So she has to be kind of clever about it and make sure that her brother-in-law thinks that this was his idea. And isn't it good that Frances is now going to go live in Belgravia, which is a nice, posh neighborhood of London. And uh, she's going to let us take control of the house. And uh, so she kind of talks her way into that aspect. And it's a new adventure for Frances. She's been told by her mother what to do. Then she was told by her in-laws what to do. And then she was told by her husband what to do. So this is the first time she was actually kind of taking control of her life. And that was really the impetus for me to write this book. Let's see what she does with this. Well, sometimes when a spouse meets with an untimely end, the number one suspect is the surviving spouse. And in this situation, you've told us that Reggie was less than faithful. There was some goings-on there that Francis was well aware of. Is she kind of in the crosshairs of the investigation at all? She wasn't. And originally, there was no investigation. It was thought that that uh, Reggie died of natural causes. Okay. It wasn't until Francis moved out that the police received a uh, an anonymous letter saying that maybe it wasn't natural causes and they really ought to look to his wife. Mm. And so that's where an investigation begins. So it's a full year later before the police start investigating the murder. And Francis is indeed a suspect. Mm. Anonymous letters are never a good thing when they arrive, boys and girls. Her new London neighbor, after she moves, she meets a man named George Hazleton. He appears to be quite the stroke of good fortune on the surface. Not only is he dashing and chivalrous, but he's also helpful when it comes to unraveling the truth of what really happened to Reggie, right? He really is, yeah. He's he's, uh, someone she had met long ago uh, when she first came to London, but her mother wasn't interested because George was a third son and not in line for a title. Mm, So she kind of put him off. And uh, Frances forgot about him. She married Reggie, and they would see each other occasionally in social circles, but they were not close friends. However, Reggie did play a role when, uh, gosh, I'm sorry, not Reggie, George played a role when Reggie died to kind of, I don't want to go into too much detail, but he kind of helped save a few reputations at that time because of the way Reggie did die or the location. And Francis is a little galled that he's her neighbor in in that, oh gosh, he's, he knows my secrets. So that, that was a bit galling for her. But yes, George really did turn out to be a gentleman and uh, someone who helps her a lot. And There's quite a future for George and Francis throughout 
hopefully six books. Diane, in, in our modern day world today, if, if we know something or if we suspect that we know something, we just throw caution to the wind and go charging in. I get the sense that in this environment, there's a certain amount of etiquette and protocol involved. You may know something, you may be certain of something, but there's a certain way to go about it, right? Certainly. Yeah, there's absolutely protocol. It, it works that way. And um, Frances would have learned that over the course of 10 years. Actually, her mother was pretty good at teaching her proper etiquette, and she just had to translate it into how that works in London society. Um, as far as solving crimes goes, Frances gets to use her status in in some way in that regard. She is allowed a little more leniency because it's hard to tell an aristocrat, no, no, I'm not going to answer your questions or no, I'm not going to give you this information. She kind of works her way around that. And she has quite a few other little tricks up her sleeve. She doesn't have the usual attributes you would expect from uh, an investigator. She has a way of of working around that. Uh, Servants are an endless source of information. They know everything that goes on in the house because they're everywhere. And the people who live in these great houses just ignore them. They think they are a lamp or a vacuum cleaner. You know, they don't really look at them as people. So they pretty much hear everything that goes on. And Frances manages to use them quite a bit as uh, sources of information when she really needs to find out. For instance, even when it's not crime-related, she's bringing her sister out in society, and her sister has some suitors. She wants to make sure that her sister doesn't fall for the same thing she did and become married for her money, so she's going to really bet these suitors thoroughly, and that can involve talking to the servants in their household or having her maid do so. So there's ways to work your way around her. She has to kind of insinuate herself into these situations simply because a woman would not normally be asking these questions, and neither would an aristocrat. Now, her sister is Lily, and we haven't really discussed her a whole lot yet, but I know that she filters throughout the series here. Give us a little bit of background with Lily. She's very important to Frances, is she not? She is. She's Frances's baby sister. And um, Frances left for London when Lily was about 10. So that took a lot out of their lives. She's very excited to have Lily back in her life. And they had different experiences with their mother. With Frances, she was a, a good student. She was a dutiful daughter. She just wanted to please her mother because that was practically the only contact she had. And because of Frances, Lily was able to be more accepted in New York society. So she was a little bit more of a rebel, wasn't particularly interested, and her mother pretty much washed her hands of her and sent her on to Frances. Here, you do something with this girl. <laughs> yes. But uh, but Lily does, She, I mean, she still does want to please, but she's not quite sure how to go about it, and she also wants what she wants. And she is 18, so she's a bit spoiled, and... um a little self-involved, and she kind of makes life a little difficult for Frances. She she wants what she wants, and Frances wants her to be careful, and it, it's a lot of fun. They have a really good relationship. She seems to be one that would just be willing to disregard etiquette 
given the opportunity. We've got three people that we've met here. We've got Lily, we've got her older sister, Frances, and of course, George. I want to get in these three books. There are cozy mysteries. There are crimes involved. Let's just get a synopsis of what we have going on in each book, a brief capsule if we can. Book one, give me the title of it, and is Reggie at the heart of the crime in this book, or is there something else going on in this one? Uh, Book one is A Lady's Guide to Etiquette and Murder, and Reggie is an old crime that that's dredged up, and it's Francis is being kind of framed for this, and that's one crime that has to be solved. But there's another murder that takes place as Francis is investigating her sister's suitors, and because that's what happened when this particular person was murdered, the the person was an informant. She suspects one of these suitors, and it's very urgent that she find out which one might have murdered this gentleman before her sister marries him. Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually, Frances is investigating one thing, so she's working with the police on that, and then she's also kind of trying to elude letting the police know what really happened surrounding the circumstances of her husband's death while not being accused of his murder. Wow. It's very tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Let's switch gears and look at book two real quickly. We haven't talked about that one at all. Book three just released. We'll get to it in a second. But book two, give me the title and tell me briefly what's happening in this one, who ended up on the carpet face down, and what crime do we have to solve? Uh, book two is A Lady's Guide to Gossip and Murder. Mm. And um, Frances has another friend who is also a widow. She's a middle-aged widow. And when Frances hears that this woman has been murdered, she can't imagine why. She's a widow, living alone, harmless, blameless. Then when she starts digging into the reasons, she finds that this woman has thousands of notes detailing the private indiscretions of just about everybody in society. And when Frances sees that, she can't imagine who wouldn't want to kill her to keep their secrets safe. So this was a situation where there's almost too many suspects because anybody identified in those notes could have killed her. Mm, Okay, so this is a silencer kind of a murder going on in that Mm -hmm. one. Book three just recently released. It's A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Murder. What kind of mischief do we have going on in book three? We have some very malicious mischief. Um, Francis has got to have a speedy wedding for Lily. Apparently from this you will find out that Lily did pick a gentleman and they are engaged and suddenly they need to get married very quickly and quietly. So she'd like to have it take place out in the country with just very close family. She thinks she's got her problem solved when George Hazleton says, well, you can use my family home. I'm there. The Earl is gone. We're having a shooting party. At the end of the shooting party, we have a wedding. Perfect. This is going to work out. Once everybody gets to the country, accidents start happening and people are injured, be it the guests or the staff. And then one actually falls dead. So these are really malicious little accidents, and it takes a while 
for Francis to realize they're all centered around the groom. Uh, and the groom's name is Leo. So she wants to figure out is somebody trying to just cause mischief or is somebody actually trying to kill Leo? Mm. So that's kind of the mystery plot of that particular book. Leo, I don't want to say you're involved here, but everything points your way. Characters and character development, we're going to dig into both a little bit deeper in our next segment. My guest today, Diane Freeman, we're talking about the Countess of Harley Cozy Mystery Series. There's three books in the series at this point. The latest, A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Murder, just released. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. This is Daryl Wood Gerber, the author of the Fairy Garden Mystery Series, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Walking away from another useless day. Don't care where I roam. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash p-d-i and become a valued part of the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-d-i. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midpoint of this week's adventure, and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I want to take a moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers, those of you who have given the podcast a rating or a review, and those of you who help support the show through our Patreon page. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to be a part of helping us upgrade our outdated recording equipment so that we can continue bringing these conversations your way, we'd really appreciate your support through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash P-D-I. There's a link to it on the host page for each adventure. Another great way you can show support for the show is by using links to Amazon found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title but ended up purchasing Toys for the Kids or some comfy harem pants to wear around the house. Well, your purchase just helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. The Sendable Social Media Management Tool is another great way you can support the show. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media to help promote your business, I promise you, you won't find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got links to Sendable on almost every page of the website. Click on it and take a free 14-day test drive on us. We've been using Sendable for over a year now, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this adventure. I realize that you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms, and we do hope that you'll give us a rating and a review while you're listening. But the adventure host pages on the Public Display of Imagination website 
are where you'll find direct links to the authors, their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see a link to the Inside the Writer's Workshop segment we recorded with today's guest. It's uploaded to our Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel, and it's waiting just for you. It's always one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these extended author interview segments your way via our YouTube channel. So I hope you'll check out Public Display of Imagination on YouTube and explore all of the fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations that we have available. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI Adventure. This is M.L. Huey, the author of Spitfire, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. It's a good possibility I'm not who you think I am And it's a likely in the situation that I want to hold Hi, we're back. My guest, Diane Freeman, we're talking to her about the Countess of Harley Mystery Series. It's a series of cozy mysteries. There's three books in the series Right now, at this moment, the latest book, A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Murder. It's just released. Diane, I know that for every author, they have to have a place online. I visited your website. You've got a very nice website with a lot of great information there. But every author also has to be somewhat involved in social media. You can't be everywhere. That would take up all your time. But you have to be somewhere. If somebody wanted to follow your work more closely or maybe reach out to you about something in the book, something they heard in this conversation, something they read as they were reading through one of the books in the series. What's the best place for people to find you online? The best place to find me is probably my website, which is difreeman.com. And you can chat with me there. I, I am a bit of a blogger. I do try to blog pretty regularly, maybe every two weeks. And uh, answer all my emails. Uh, on social media, I am probably most active on Facebook. And that's uh, Diane Freeman, author. Twitter for me is um, just kind of shouting into the void. <laughs> I, 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 I don't understand it. I enjoy reading it, you know, going through and reading other people's comments. But I always feel like, well, I don't know. I, I get no traction on Twitter, so I kind of stay away from it. Uh, I do use Instagram a little bit, and that's Diane Freeman Writes on and, Instagram. And folks, we will have links to all of these places on the host page for this adventure where you can click and get right to Diane's website or connect with her through Facebook, see what she's doing on Twitter or Instagram. It's a one click. We get you right to the proper page because sometimes when you do searches, you can come up with a variety of different options there. We'll get you to the right place on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Many cozy mystery books have a little bit of a how-to thread running through them, Diane. Usually it's a recipe of sorts, some type of a sharing there. Sometimes it's a little crafty life hack of sorts that weaves its way into the pages. What would a reader find inside the Harley Mystery series? What else would they find woven within the storyline? Uh, they would not find those typical things. I I, uh, I agree that a lot of cozies do have uh, recipes or crafts 
or something along those lines. This is more on the edges of a cozy mystery. This is more of a traditional mystery or what they used to call way back when a malice domestic. Mm -hmm. So it does fall into those parameters, but um, Francis does not craft. She does not (laughs) do anything. And and I'm not, I'm not um, bring you, manner lessons either these these are just your your typical traditional mystery stories more along the lines of agatha christie you don't uh you don't have a little dear abby column tucked in the back there where uh you answer Uh, the uh you know questions about etiquette what there was another syndicated columnist who wrote about etiquette not dear abby there was another one that did it but uh just kind of curious and landers and landers yes that used to be the big thing in papers that would actually have been a really good idea. I wish you had suggested that a few years ago. Oh, okay. So maybe now, <laughs> folks, you can send your you can send your life questions into Diane. We'll, you can flood them through our program here, or go straight to the source on the website. Flood them in. She'll overlay those stories into the life of Lily, and then Francis will unravel the thread for you. That's 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 the way we'll do it. We'll just beat them off with a stick, Diane, until we have the entire world straightened out. And I'm sure that's not a big project at all. We met no, three. Not at all. No. We met <laughs> we met three characters in our first segment and and talked a little bit about the backdrop of the book, the setting in London, the the socialite atmosphere. But you introduce another character in book three that feels like she's a really important anchor point that's kind of kept at a distance early on. Can we take a few moments to talk about Daisy? Daisy is the mother, and she plays an important role in this. Oh, Daisy really formed these girls. Uh, She is their mom, and she was a huge part of their life. And um, when I started writing this series, as a beginning writer, I actually read some reviews, and I, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but I was surprised how people kind of criticized Lily, in my opinion. I thought, Lily, you don't like Lily. How is that possible? So I knew by the time I was actually writing book two, I thought, okay, you are going to find out why Lily is the way she is. You're going to meet her mother. And so I knew I had to bring... Daisy Price in, and and it also explains how Frances kind of developed the way she is. Book three is definitely a story of mothers and daughters. That that's definitely going on in the background. The whole idea behind Daisy is somebody had to be pushing that family into society. If if you were one of the nouveau riche, and Daisy was the one for their family. She she was kind of a Gosh, I can't think of what you would call it. Uh, she just wanted to break in. She wanted a better social position for the family. And in Francis, she found a willing participant. And Francis thought that this also was a very good idea to go and, and meet a gentleman in, a titled gentleman in London and just marry him just because mom thought he was a good guy. Lily, as I, I discussed, was, was a little more rebellious in that regard. But, um, That's how Daisy thought you did it. I think we all know moms do the best they can Mm -hmm. with what they've got. And that was what Daisy did. She wanted to improve their society. Her assets were her daughters. This is what I have to work with. This is how we can move our family up the ladder. And 
she was very disappointed that Lily chose a commoner to marry, and she does not keep that quiet. So she's complaining pretty much throughout this book, right up until the wedding day, pretty much, and uh, trying to convince Lily that she still has time to change her mind. But uh, she was a social climber. That's kind of who Daisy is. So she thinks that Lily is kind of settling, so to speak, and marrying beneath what she could be marrying into. Exactly. And she feels like Francis let them down by not guiding Lily that way. Ah, okay. So early on, and this is, I think, uh, something that flows through the heartbeat of every mom, early on it is, I will equip you to face the world. And then later on, when you see how the child responds and the decisions that they make, you hold your head in your hands and wonder, how did I fail this child so miserably? Um, And I think we put our parents through that with every decision we make. Because we're not them. Earlier, we described this series as a historical mystery that finds its inspiration in real-life stories of American heiresses. You even mentioned a couple who married into the British aristocracy in the late 19th century. Give me a couple of stories or personalities that really captivated you along the way, maybe even served as a bit of a sounding board for how you wanted to craft your characters. Yeah, I, I would say my favorite, my favorite heiress was uh, Consuelo Iznaga. She was half Cuban. Um, her Both her parents came from the South, I think Louisiana. And two strikes against her. She was not getting into New York society simply because she was half Cuban. And also, I believe they moved to New York around the 1860s, so not long after the Civil War, where... New York was not looking at Southerners with anything like extending a gracious welcome. So she she was definitely blocked out there. She married the heir to the Duke of Marlborough. And um, he, he was pretty much like Reggie. He was kind of how I modeled Reggie in that he needed Consuelo's money, but he really didn't want Consuelo. But he was stuck with her, so he dropped her off at the old family pile in the country, and then he went about his bachelor ways. And Consuelo, her father ended up losing, taking a big loss in his money. So her income was cut. Her husband had nothing. And uh, Consuelo ended up becoming a uh, liaison for other young ladies coming to England and looking for their titled lord. And she made her income that way. She was a good friend of the Prince of Wales. She was a very charming and lovely lady. And she managed to get into the Prince of Wales' close acquaintances, and that really helped make her popular. So she ended up basically working for a living. Probably my favorite heiress, I just liked her, yes, I know how to take care of myself attitude. Yeah. So she ended up being a matchmaker of sorts on a more personal level. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And whether whether or not she thought she was doing these girls a favor or not, she did it. And she probably, you know, I, I, I do not know this, but I would feel like she probably tempered her guidance in a way of, okay, look, this guy is only after your money. Mm-hmm. Is that what you really want? You know, I, I really... 
I'm putting that on her. I don't know if it's true. But another one that I thought was um, really interesting, there was a big feud that went on, and this more involved the fathers. A lot of the reasons these families were not accepted in, you know, delicate, genteel society was because these men did not necessarily make their money honestly. There, there were not really any labor laws at the time, so they, they abused their employees. They cheated where they had to or felt they had to, and they clawed their way to the top. And so these genteel families were like, I don't want my kids to have anything to do with you. You scare me, mister. And um, there was, so there was a good reason. And Jenny Jerome's father would have been one of those. He was very, very wealthy. And I don't remember his particular line of business, but he was one who would just kind of knock down anyone who got in his way. And his three daughters all had to go overseas where nobody knew who they were to get married. And uh, Jenny Jerome ended up marrying Randolph Churchill. So she is the mother and he is the father of Winston Churchill. Oh, wow. So, yeah, kind of interesting. These, these, some of these women did make an amazing life for themselves in British society. They, for the most part, couldn't work. But they headed up charities. They ran hospitals during the war. They they really knew how to get things done. And I think that's kind of their American how-to attitude. What an interesting backdrop for all this of how the real history that not really it's it's not I guess a mainstream picture that a lot of people would know. But the backdrop of the real history is really intricate and really, I guess, in some ways orchestrated to produce the end result. It it just is fascinating. It's not something that I was aware of going into our conversation today. Well, you know, a lot of other uh, the other side of this, too, is you rarely throughout history hear what women did. Because maybe they did things a little more quietly. Right. And, and like in, in the fiction in my book, they have to insinuate themselves in mm. things. They have to go through the back doors and, and work their way in. And so they're not that prominent, but they're also often the backbone behind some of these organizations and why they exist. Yeah. They had to be the ones that influenced, but no one knew they were the ones influencing. What is it Winston Churchill's famous for saying, history will be kind to me because I will write it? And I think that's what you have in the male-dominated society that kind of overwrites the telling of the story, but doesn't so much give the background of the influencers behind the scenes. And that that is very interesting detail that you bring into this. We've got an array of characters that move in and out of our story and move our story along. Frances, of course, our main character, her sister, younger sister, Lily, George Hazleton, that we met a little bit earlier, and and now Frances and Lily's mom, Daisy. Many authors tell me that the characters in their books take on a bit of a life on their own, and they begin to lead the way as the story begins to unfold. I'd like to go back to your original rough draft as you were putting the original storyline idea down. 
at the keyboard. It's coming together for you. It's starting to take shape. Which personality did you really meet first, and who introduced you to who character-wise along the way? Well, Francis, certainly first. It, it was always going to be Francis's story. And she needed somebody to act off of. You know, she, she needed to have other people populate her story. Her in-laws probably came right after that because there was something she had to get away from. The, the uh, cloying, hold-me-back people. So she needed to get away from them and get off on her own. And I needed to give her something to do, so why not have her bring her sister out? Mm-hmm. And you're you're absolutely right. I totally agree with you. You meet the characters, and they kind of identify themselves along the way. Because in the in the book, Lily comes to England with her aunt Hetty, but in the first draft, it was Francis's brother Alonzo. And all through the first draft, I had to keep sending Alonzo places. I had no use for him. It was, no, you, you have to go here, okay. And I kept making excuses for why he wasn't in various scenes. And then when I finished the first draft, I thought, this is just awful. Why do I even have him there? So a 24-year-old young man turned into a 50-year-old woman. So you cut Alonzo um, out of the photo album. Absolutely, he's gone. Well, he shows <laughs> up again in book three. Okay, so he gets a reprieve. <laughs> That's funny. But I just I gave him the wrong job. Okay. You know, this this was not for him to do and and he made it clear to me that he did not want to do it. So I called on Aunt Hetty and and she I, she's become quite a popular character. Okay. But so- uh, I think once you're doing the first draft or once I've finished the first draft, that's when I finally know these characters and uh-huh. I may have been making them do things totally against character throughout that. And that's why you revise. Yeah, absolutely. So she, so the first problem with Alonzo was just a bad assignment. It wasn't like he was a character that wasn't useful or didn't have a role. He was just stuck in the wrong place at the right time. Exactly. Why are you making me do this? I'm not the call Aunt Hattie. She it, should be the one. To there it. you go. In many <laughs> thrillers, our lead character may be someone with a tie to special ops of some sort who we know is going to traffic in all things going sideways. That's kind of the nature of thrillers. In a cozy mystery, our lead characters are just trying to get along. They're living life. They're baking cookies. They're keeping up with the latest gossip. They're out walking their Yorkie. But dead bodies keep showing up. I'm personally fascinated with biblical history. You've told us a great story and given us great insight into the history of Europe and London and the marriages across the pond and the way they were put together, I'm fascinated by biblical history. And in the biblical book of First Kings, I think it's I think it's chapter 22, we get this really interesting glimpse into God's council room through the eyes of a prophet named Micaiah. And boys and girls, if you've ever heard of Micaiah, well, give yourself a gold star because he's not at the top of the list of anyone's famous prophets that you might know about. But 
He is dealing with one of the Israelite kings named Ahab, and you may remember the stories of Ahab and Jezebel from your flannel graph lessons. Anyway, Ahab has reached a point in his life where it's time for him to die. The question is, how? How is this going to happen? So in 1 Kings chapter, I think it's chapter 22, God has a team meeting with his council to get suggestions and sort out the detail. Now, that kind of stuff fascinates me, and I think it often gets overlooked. In cozy mysteries, someone always winds up dead. I'm curious, as an author, do you plot the murder up front, or just figure out who's on the hit list and where to dump the body, and then solve for X? How does it work for you? I'm really surprised you asked this question, because every now and then when I say this, people think, you do? I absolutely plot the crime first. Yeah. And sometimes it's not just the murder. Sometimes I have other crimes going on. And yeah, I do. I go through that. I have a little sheet and I go through the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Um, who's the victim? Who's the, the murderer? And I always know who did it first, which doesn't mean that as I go through that first draft, it could change. I mean, mm-hmm. I keep it flexible, but it's, it's something I just felt, um, kind of natural doing it that way so that as I do go through the story, I already know who has an alibi and who doesn't and who's where when this happens. And I don't have to try and go through that when I'm already on, say, draft four right? and say, oh, wait a minute, they're in the wrong place. They couldn't have done that. So I have to know what they are, but but plotting the murder is, um, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but plotting the murder is a lot of fun. Well, yeah, I remember I talked with a cozy mystery author a couple of years ago, Leslie Nagel, and she writes the Oakwood Mystery Series, I believe is the name of her series, and she told me she was in the grocery store, and one of her neighbors saw her and said, Leslie, I've got the perfect place to kill somebody and hide the body, or something along that line, and I thought, <laughs> this is the life of an author. So, so Diane, that's kind of where you start. Who am I killing, and where do I hide the body, and how do I pull this off? How'd I do it? What did I do it with? You bet. Do you get inspiration? And how am I going to get away with it? You get inspiration from people you know, maybe somebody in the neighborhood that uh, you know didn't pick up behind their dog when they should have. What what, what inspires you? you know, there? I, I, <laughs> I can I can totally understand that, but no, I haven't gotten that yet. But it's it'll it'll be um, just funny things, and it's it is kind of weird. I have a bit of a, a macabre imagination, and I I do imagine. Um, horrible things every now and then i really could write horror except i just scare myself you know so i I have to stick with cozy but um gosh inspiration i don't know i have to i have to take an i don't know on this i just start looking at what kind of crime would work with the story i'm doing um for an example in, in book three where i needed francis to go was to feel the confidence to say, okay, George Hazleton, we're going to get married, but you are not going to treat me like my first husband did. I'm going to be a part of these investigations. And she doesn't, in the beginning of the book, have the courage to say that, so she's just avoiding the topic. So I needed her to do almost all of the crime solving in this, which is kind of hard when George is there. Right. So I needed the distraction of the house party so that he could be saying, come on, I'm on vacation. No, these are just accidents. 
They are not crimes. They're just accidents. I needed him to be good and distracted so that he would kind of be out of the way so that she could solve the crime. So that's why I thought, okay, we'll start with accidents. So that even though they're staged accidents, they're deliberate, he could very well blow them off. So it's just kind of depends on what type of crime I need to have the character develop throughout the, the story, which is kind of weird what type of crime I need, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, so in this case, she's seeing things that he doesn't see. She's connecting the dots. He thinks she's overreacting, and he's blowing her off, and she's like, no, something is building here. This is not going in a good direction. And, of course, it does open the door for her to put together all the puzzle pieces and, I guess, put on the table a crime that needs to be solved. Am I reading into that correctly? You are. Yeah, that is correctly. And she ends up saving the day. There we go. Now she has the courage to say, you know what? I'm as good as you are, and I I want my rights. I know my abilities, and I want my rights. And, And she was just too afraid to say that in the beginning. Now she can put her high heel into the ground and stand her ground. <laughs> Back before the year 2000 launched us into this fast-paced roller coaster that we know as the year 2020, you were a part of a publication about the Haunted Highway. Stories told about America's Highway, Route 66. What drew you to this highway, and did you actually travel it to come up with the storyline? The idea came at a writer's conference with my co-author in Albuquerque, and Route 66 goes through Albuquerque, and we were going to write the Route 66 cookbook, and we actually did start, we we did travel it, but we did it in bits and pieces, like a, a few states a year, and once we stopped at the first location, instead of a recipe, we got a really awesome ghost story. Really? And we changed the theme. <laughs> and that was uh, traveling from Arizona to California on Route 66. And um, we did. That was a short trip. We went home, did our research, found new locations to visit. And we did visit all 66 sites and got the ghost stories behind them. Diane Freeman, ladies and gentlemen, Diane Freeman. Today we talked mostly about the Countess of Harley Cozy Mystery Series. Book number three in that series just released, but we're going to have links to all three books on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. You'll also find links to her social media pages, as well as a link to the book Haunted Highway, The Spirits of Route 66. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Diane, this has been a lot of fun. It's been very informative. I learned a lot about history that I did not know today. So thank you for that. And thank you for setting aside the time to join us on the show. Oh, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with Diane about the Countess of Harley Mysteries and learning quite a bit about the history that's behind the stories. But the fun's only beginning, folks. In our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, we'll find out what she's working on now and go inside the pages of Haunted Highway, The Spirits of Route 66. She's also going to tell us about an author that she read in her childhood that I'd never heard of prior to this conversation. 
You'll find it all on the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. We call it our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, and we do one with each author guest that you hear here on the podcast. You can listen to that portion of the conversation right from the host page for each adventure on the Public Display of Imagination website. And we hope you're intrigued enough at this point to join us there as we go behind the curtains with Diane Freeman. You'll also see book summaries on the host page for this adventure and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books that we talked about over the course of our conversation. Thank you for subscribing and listening through whatever podcast listening platform you use to follow the show. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review. And until next time, remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. Theme music for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jabon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.